This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, William and Mary. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rats Factory, viewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And we left last time with... James, who was rubbish. James the second, although David Nolan left a comment on the Podbean website saying, I think you should give James one point under subjectivity on the grounds that his Catholic subjects would presumably have welcomed the limited toleration he sought. And there are quite a number of them, particularly if Ireland is included. That's a fair point, I suppose. It is. I think we dismissed it because it was such a disastrous mm. reign. And I suppose the fact that he didn't actually bring that about ultimately meant that yeah. they didn't have a lot to enjoy. Um, of course, leave comments on the website, um, at Rex Factor Pod on Twitter, on the Facebook uh, pages, and also you can send us an email, RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. So, William and Mary this week. Yeah, that's a weird one. William III and Mary II. A lot of people asking how we're going to do this one. Um, we'll go into the hows and whys that they are joint rulers, but yeah. basically we are going to do them together as a collective, so all the scores will be just for William and Mary. Yep. But when we get to the end, we might we could separate them if we thought that one of them was deserving, one of them wasn't. Yeah. Or if they both were. Yeah. So, first off, Mary. Okay, ladies first. Mary the second. Uh, she was born in 1662, the daughter of James the second and his first wife Anne Hyde. Yeah. Uh, she becomes queen in 1689. So even though James was Dispatched in 1688, it wasn't until 1689 that they actually agreed. So who's there in the interim? Well, it's the sort of legal difficulty that they have this kind of period when nobody's there. But anyway, it was late in the year when James goes, so it's early Mm. in the next year. Anyway, so she's about 26 years old in 1689 when she becomes queen. And in her relationship to Elizabeth II, she is second cousin eight times removed. It's getting there. Slowly Mm. but surely. Slowly but surely. Her background... um, her childhood, she was the eldest surviving child of James II for most of her life, um, with just a younger sister, Anne. Although, as you recall, right at the end when James has this Catholic son by a second wife, and that's the controversy, oh, yeah. which yeah. Um, diverts the succession briefly, potentially. Uh, she's brought up as a child of state at Richmond. So this means that she sort of grows up apart from her parents. Is that Richmond up north or Richmond in London? Richmond, Paris, right. London. Yeah. Um, so, on the orders of Charles II, she's brought up as a Protestant, because her father, James, was Catholic, which was the big issue, really, with him, mm-hmm. in terms of why people weren't happy with him, but his daughters are brought up as Protestants. Why? 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 Because Charles II insists upon it, because they're brought up separately from James. Oh, sorry, Charles II, not James So Charles, as yeah. king, yeah. says, recognises the political situation, the, they've mm. got to be Protestants. Her education, unfortunately, this is something of a low point this period for the education of women. Um, so they were encouraged to be rather ornaments than scholars. Mm. So uh, she learned nothing really of history, geography or the law, weak English skills, nothing of Latin or Greek. Weak English? Yeah, well, I mean, she, obviously she speaks English perfectly oh, we, well, but her yeah. sort of grammar and things like that mm. isn't particularly good. In terms of her appearance, she's very tall, uh, five foot eleven. Crikey, that is. It is tall. Uh, large dark eyes and hair, um, thought to be extremely beautiful as a young girl or woman, but she had a sort of lifelong fear of growing fat. 
because mm. her mother Anne Hyde had grown sort of almost morbidly really? obese. Um, and she was a very emotional and sort of sensual, sorry, sensual is the wrong word, um, in a sort of sense sensitive. and sensibility type, oh, right. yes, sensitive. Um, so she had a young girlish crush on a, a girl called Frances Aspley, who was about nine years older than her. So she used to write her these sort of really romantic letters and sort of like girlish romances oh, right. of the period. So she's very emotional, flighty. But presumably in really broken English. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> so that's Mary. Now we move on to William. Mm-hmm. William the Third. Born in 1650, the son of William II of Orange, and Mary Stuart, who is a sister of Charles and James. Right. So, William III is the nephew of James II. So that's pretty good claim. He is actually behind Mary and Anne. He was third in line to the English throne. Okay. Um, He becomes king as well in 1689, Mm -hmm. so he's 38 years old. And he is also second cousin eight times removed of Elizabeth II. Okay. His background is Dutch. Mm. So we have Ooh. the House of Orange. So he's the great-grandson of a man, William the Silent, mm. William I, and in Holland. So he formed an independent Protestant Dutch Republic. So this was when, during the Elizabethan period, when Spain was at its might, and the Dutch sort of pushed them out, rebelled, mm. held out as a little independent republic. Everything got thrown at them, but this legendary guy, William the Silent, sort of effectively forms a republic. Forms Holland. Well, not Holland, the Netherlands. So oh, Holland's, no, yes, Holland's a little Holland's the region yeah. of the Netherlands. So what they have is they are princes. It's almost like a principality, but you've got conflict between the Orangists, who support the sort of dynastic line, mm. and then you've got the Republicans, who want to try and push them out and be a pure right. political yeah, body. Yeah. So they are princes, or they're what's called sort of stadtholder, head of the army. So his upbringing, um, his father, William II, died before he was born. Um, his mother died before he was ten. So he's brought up by Republicans, of course, <laughs> in effect, because they're now in control, because obviously the previous yeah. generations died, who hate the Orange family, and they deprive him of his offices, so he's not allowed to become stadtholder, he's not allowed to be nominally head of the army. And in 1672, there's a big turning point. It's known as the Rampyar in Holland, either the disaster year, whereby Louis XIV invaded with about 120,000 well-trained French troops, took numerous Dutch provinces, and... Charles II just joined him with the French, <laughs> rather than supporting <laughs> his relatives. So England and France, England on a naval basis, France with a big army, invade Holland. Lots of territories go. Disaster scenario, and at that point, William is restored to his offices. So he's made stadtholder, he's made head of the army, at 20 years old, he's got to deal with it. So he refuses peace terms from Louis and Charles. England are forced out of the war in 1674, William builds an alliance with Spain and other countries around Europe, and in 1678, the Treaty of Nijmegen um, brings it all to a close, and France uh, evacuates the Netherlands. Well done, William. He's held out. Yeah. So that's a good start. At this stage, Charles II, having learned his lesson, decides, right, well, that didn't work, we better find another way of bringing the Dutch back on side. Mm. So he enters into negotiations mm. with William, and the issue of William marrying the eldest of James II's daughters... Mary. Um, William amused Charles, apparently, when they were having the negotiations, because rather than just sort of shaking hands and getting on with it, he kept refusing to be drawn on the subject. And eventually they found out it was because he wouldn't negotiate anything until he'd actually seen Mary. Fair enough, I'd say. Well, yeah, but apparently he was considered quite eccentric at the time. Oh, right, yeah. But uh, Charles laughed heartily when he heard about (laughs) it, but agreed to it quite happily. Charlie. Uh, James who became James II, but James distrusted him. Of course, James is Catholic, he's got strong sympathies to Louis XIV, he wanted a French marriage. Uh, but Charles II knew that he needed to offset James's Catholicism in the country with a popular Protestant marriage. So William, at this point, very popular among Protestants because he's held out against Louis XIV. So James is upset, but he's very loyal to his brother, so he agrees to the marriage. Louis XIV was very upset about it because he knew that this would really help bolster William's position yeah, yeah. in Europe. And poor old Mary, who was just 15 at the time, apparently wept for several days, I've been oh, told. That's sad. <laughs> and the reason for this, although he's in many ways seems like a great prospect, you know, he's about 30 years old, he's this ruler in Holland, she's he's fought off. Yeah. But um, he's only about 5 foot 6. Remember, really? She's 5'11. Five he's, five um, he's got a hooked nose, oh. quite a fragile build, he's not a very healthy man, very asthmatic. 
and he's quite cold and sort of emotionless. He sounds like Uncle personality. Fester. Well, yeah, because because of his upbringing, brought up amongst Republicans that hated him, no one at court. He's got a very you know he's very withdrawn. He doesn't really mm. trust anybody. Yeah, probably. So he's not very good looking, quite unhealthy, and not, mm. not very forthcoming. Yeah. Whereas Mary, of course, sensual, emotional, flighty. Yeah, let's get married. So well, until she meets him, so she's mm. pretty upset about it. So come the wedding, everything's a little bit sombre. Mm-hmm. So Mary has been sulky and emotional and offish to Williams. As a result, Williams a bit fed up and keen just to get back home to Holland, get it all over the, and done with. James refuses to attend the wedding because mm. he doesn't like him, and his wife Mary of Medina is quite upset because she was very fond of Mary. Mm. So everyone's rather glum at the wedding. Um, so Charles, who ends up giving Mary away at the wedding, <laughs> what does he do? He tries to lighten the mood. Yeah, go on. Tells jokes, the little jokes throughout the ceremony, uh, <laughs> gives her away, and that the royal bedding. Where, yeah. of course, the couple are literally put to bed and expected Tucked to in. do their duties. Um, William refused to remove his woollen drawers, his, uh, yeah. his trousers. Literally. And uh, Well, you kept being pressed on it, and Charles saying, come on, what are you doing? Take them off. Eventually, Charles gave in, uh, drew the curtains, and then said, now, nephew, to your work. Hey, St. George for England. <laughs> that guy. Oh, fantastic. So, in the portraits, I might be making this up, but is Mary always sitting down? I do have an image of her sitting down, I've got down, an image of her yes. sitting down, and it's probably because of the height difference. It's sort it? of like Tom Cruise situation. Yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, they are married. Mary, of course, is distraught. Her mother-in-law, Mary of Medina, tried to comfort her because she's saying, you know, I had to leave my home and go abroad to get married young, but um, young Mary replies, yes, madam, but you were coming into England. I'm going out of England. Oh, yes. However... Un- uh, quite surprisingly, it actually turns out to be quite a happy marriage. Really? Yeah, Mary loves her life in Holland, gets on very well, and there does develop between them a genuine affection. Mm. William's not particularly forthcoming with that affection at times, but every now and again, you know, he does, and they do have a genuine yeah, relationship, and she supports him very strongly. Oh, right. Okay, well, that's nice. Yes. <laughs> that is nice. That is nice, yes. 1685, of course, sadly, Charles II died. Mm. James II became king. Ooh. Now, at this stage, Mary is the next in line to the throne, because she is James's eldest child. Yeah. Which William, of course, is banking on, because that means his wife is going to be Queen of England, that's all good. Mm. But for the moment, James is king. James pretty much supports Louis Fourteenth, and he dislikes William. And William tries to play ball um, when we have the Monmouth Rebellion right at the start of James's reign. William refused to give him any help, but he doesn't really get anything back from James. Um, and also James, when he was trying to convert all of his ministers, he also tries to convert his daughter Mary to Catholicism. Mm. Uh, but Mary refutes his arguments yeah. quite strongly. Good. The big issue for William in all of this is Louis XIV, um, the hugely powerful king of France. This is the Sun King. The Sun King. William's chief purpose in life is basically just to oppose the expansion of Louis XIV. Everything he does is geared towards that. Everything else is a means to an end. And there is war brewing in Europe. There was a dispute um, at an election for an archbishop in Cologne, where Louis XIV's candidate was passed over by the Pope and he was trying to force it. So the tensions were brewing. And William feared what would happen if James, seeming to support Louis XIV, came into the war on the side of France. Mm. So William's keen to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's not too bad for him because his wife is going to inherit the throne. At the moment. At the moment. However, James has a tricky reign, as we recall. Try to repeal the test acts against uh, Catholics, try to have a standing army with Catholic officers, trying the seven bishops for seditious libel, rigging judicial benches and elections, etc., etc., all very to bad. To name but a few. But the biggest thing was when his son was born. Mm. Mary, thanks to letters from Anne, who was still in England, was convinced that it was a fake child. Do you remember there are lots of rumours that they just got a, another one in? Yeah. to pretend, mm-hmm. so that James would then have a son who would be brought up as a Catholic, so that would firstly mean that there'd be a Catholic succession, and it would mean that Mary wouldn't inherit the throne. Mm. So Mary's convinced that it's all a conspiracy. William, whether he thinks it is or not, the big thing for him is suddenly that means his wife isn't going to become queen, and a Catholic is going to be king of England. So he's in trouble. That means England's probably going to support France. Mm. Bad news for William. So... There is talk of invasion. 
Because the rest of the, because the rest of England because the rest of England yeah. is also unhappy about him. William is cautious. He knows that a foreign invasion would be unpopular, so he demands that he receives a letter of support, a letter of invitation, in effect, from uh, prominent politicians who are encouraging him through secret negotiations. So we have the immortal seven, the seven men that send him this invitation. So they are the earls of Danby, Shrewsbury, and Devonshire, Viscount Lumley, the Bishop of London, Edward Russell, and Henry Sidney. Two of those are considered Tories, five of them Whigs. So you do have a mix. Oh, right, OK, there's not a significance that it's more Whigs. Yeah, no, it's just the fact that there was actually some Tories on it as was well. Was there religious divides between the parties at this point? It's more. It's a bit more at the moment for this about divine right of kings versus constitution. Mm, OK. Tories are divine right of kings, Whigs believe in a parliamentary yeah. constitution. So they sent him um, an invitation which reads, We have great reason to believe we shall be every day in a worse condition than we are and less able to defend ourselves, and therefore we do earnestly wish we might be so happy as to find a remedy before it is too late for us to contribute to our own deliverance. The people are so generally dissatisfied with the present conduct of the government in relation to their religion, liberties and properties, all which have been greatly invaded, and they are in such expectation of their prospects being daily worse that Your Highness, William, may be assured there are 19 parts of 20 of the people throughout the kingdom who are desirous of a change. RSVP ASAP. Yes. <laughs> now, the big issue for William, and whether we could or not, was what Louis XIV was doing. So we mm. have crisis point at Cologne, which is near the Dutch border, mm. but also he had some issues at Vienna, which is near the south. And Louis chose to go and sort things out in the south first. Right. So that leaves yeah. the Dutch border relatively stable. William is able to invade England without having to worry about mm. France invading. He bids an emotional, a very surprisingly emotional farewell to Mary. I was just going to bring her into this. She, meanwhile, is just in the background. She's just in the background. She supports him because she thinks that James has done something so evil in having this fake child. But she does have a real moral quandary about it. She doesn't want anything to happen to her father. Mm. But she supports her husband. Her father being James. James II. Yeah. But she is, yes, in the background. But William goes to leave and then he's speaking to her. He says, if it should be God's will that we do not meet again... Pause. If that should be so, it will be necessary for you to marry again. Pause. There is no need for me to tell you that it must not be to a papist. So all these pauses are because he's having to sort of choke back tears. And eventually at this point, apparently, he just breaks down in tears. Which oh. surprises her greatly because yeah. he never <laughs> shows any emotion at all. Oh. But he actually obviously does care. It sounds like a little penguin. <laughs> a little penguin <laughs> crying. It's quite a sweet crying image. penguin <laughs> before he goes off with yeah. a massive invasion force. Okay. So he's held up by the weather initially, uh, but then the wind turns. So James is held in harbour in England, his fleet, whereas William is able to get across the Channel. He lands at Torbay in Devon, proceeds very cautiously. James, as we recall, lost his nerve at Salisbury, mm. but didn't think he could fight. His army wouldn't fight for him. He had massive nosebleeds, and he went back to London. <laughs> and then eventually, with lots of desertions, and in effect with William's behind-the-scenes help, James escapes into exile. Yeah, that was fantastic. So, now we have the situation of who is in control. Mm. This is the glorious revolution, it's often scene where James is kicked out and changes mm. are brought in, but they have something of a constitutional impasse. So in 1689 in January, a convention parliament is called, and it's so named because only a king can call parliament but there isn't a king to do so. Mm. So they just mm. sort of have a parliament which has to sort everything out. James hadn't formally abdicated, so there is, legally, it's not very clear what's actually meant to happen at this stage. And what's more, the Jacobites, i.e. James' supporters in the House of Lords, want him to be reinstated. So it's all a bit up in the air. The Whigs are claiming that James has broken his contract with the people and so his rule is forfeit. Tories are saying that there is no contract between king and people and that, in fact, king is divinely ordained by God. So, you know... Just put him on the throne. So he is king. Well, you can't, can't get around it. Some call for William and Mary to be regents during James's life and then when he dies, they will become king and mm. queen, mm. ignoring the son because he's a Catholic... So this is going on and on, the debate's going on, William gets quite frustrated about this, and he needs to be king, because of the European context, he can't be faffing around just looking after the place, he needs to be yeah. in charge of things now. Refuses to be Mary's gentleman usher, or uh, the consort in an apron strings government, mm. as he puts it, I under Mary. Mm. 
And so he says to them, I will not oppose the princess's rights, but I will hold no power dependent on the will of a woman. Therefore, if these schemes are adopted, I can give you no assistance in the settlement of the nation, but will return to my own country. Is, is that a threat? Well, it's a threat that he's saying, if, if I'm not, you don't make me king, I'm just going to go home. Why does that matter if they got married, then? Well, because William's sort of 30-odd thousand army is really all that's holding the country right. together away yeah, from okay. a sort of anarchic yeah. civil war situation. Mm. Right. So he's a strong ruler. They need him there. They, they don't know what to do with him, but they can't do without him, as yeah. Halifax says. Danby, one of the lords, writes to Mary and hopes to drive a bit of a wedge between them. So saying, you know, if you're OK with this, we're going to push ahead, so we're going to have you queen in your own right. But uh, she refuses to rule without William. Oh. And she writes back saying, I'm the prince's wife and would never be any other than what should be in conjunction with him. I shall take it extremely unkindly if any, under pretense of their care for me, should set up a divided interest between me and the prince. So she has no desire of ruling in her own right. She expects to be joint ruler with William. Always sounds like she expects to be subservient, like all that early education is... Well, she does. She does. Absolutely. That's bizarre. So she wants to support William. William is happy to be joint ruler because he knows that Mary isn't going to try and interfere Mm. and be problematic. So... William and Mary are to be joint rulers with William holding the executive power. That is a quite a weird setup. Very weird setup. Technically, her namesake, Mary I, was co monarch with Philip II of Spain, but he didn't have any power in his own right at all. So Mary was the sole executive power. Once mm. she died, Philip was out of there, and he realised actually he didn't have much power and just went off home to Spain. Oh, that's true, he did, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely William's got the executive power. So. He is king, mm-hmm. she is queen, mm-hmm. 1689, Job but, done. well, there's a lot of work to be done to secure the throne. Right. Firstly, Ireland. 1689, James II lands in Ireland with French troops, hoping to become king of England again, using Ireland as a stepping uh, stone. he raises his head again. Yeah. So the Catholic army in Ireland, unable to capture Derry in a prolonged siege, and then 1690, William invades with another huge army, defeats James at the Battle of the Boyne, and then 1691, Treaty of Limerick, Island surrenders, sorted. Sorted. James sent off back into exile. Well, again. that's Ireland sorted out. Then I don't know what the problem was. Mary was left in control, which she was quite distressed about, while William's off in Ireland. And almost as soon as William goes, a French invasion fleet turns up. Really? Oh, yes. Mary shows pretty strong leadership, in, um, to be fair to her, over various Jacobite plots that are abounding in the country at that point, dubious loyalty of some of her commanders... Uh, but there is quite a massive naval defeat for the English off Beachy Head. Oh, yes, and there's still a wreck. You can see it low mm. tide of it. Um, but after this, there's major investments um, in the Navy, mm. which leads to English naval dominance, and a victory at a naval battle at La Hogue, which prevents future invasions from France in the period. Yeah. So they turn it around mm. and establish some naval dominance. So France isn't able to invade, and that means James isn't able to. So be this restored. invasion force, although they beat the English, was well, it, yes, it didn't. It wasn't a sort of a proper conquering invasion mm. force, rather an aggressive Harrying, fleet. Sort of thing, yeah. Yes. Uh, Scotland Viscount Dundee um, led a Jacobite resistance in Scotland, hoping to you know support James. It was victorious at the sixteen eighty nine Battle of Killiecrankie. <laughs> But he was mortally wounded. So Scottish rebels put in their place, and then the Highland clans are forced to take an oath of loyalty. And of course England has to be secure. There are frequent Jacobite plots to assassinate William, um, but he's got agents at James's court in Saint-Germain who are able to sort of disrupt those. Many prominent men in England are still in correspondence with James in exile, sort of hedging their bets a bit. And in 1692, John Churchill, the Earl of Marlborough, is dismissed from court because of some of his messages leading to a clash between Mary and her sister Anne. Anne is best friends with his wife Sarah Churchill. So we have the rain, of course, as well, all this stuff going on. However, for one of them, it doesn't last quite as long. Uh Uh-oh. Mary has a lifelong melodrama about her health, so she always thinks that she's going to be ill and Mm. she's dying. Um, December 1694, she contracted smallpox Mm. and died. How, so it was 1694? Yeah. How long was she there for? So it was uh, five years. Oh, Mary. right. Okay. Uh, so she's just 32 when she dies. Mm. William, grief-stricken by all of this, apparently at the time he was weeping, collapsing, taken off to bed, didn't recover for about two months, and there were people feared that he might die as well. 
because he's always been the one that had really bad health. Yeah, yeah, well, little, little snivelling penguin. Mm. Dis- uh, declared himself the miserablest creature on earth. Mm. Serious mourning. Kept a lock of hair, her hair close to his heart, apparently. Just mm. found after he died, he was still wearing it. Mm. However, Louis Fourteenth and James II are... Well, I don't know if he, James II is thrilled that his daughter dies, but they're thrilled at the prospect. They're thinking, well, <laughs> Mary's gone. That means William's not going to last. Yeah. Because, you know, she's the one that's got the full claim to the throne. However, William continues to be king. So it's agreed that he will be king, and then when he dies, it will be Anne. Yeah, yeah. So James... And who is Protestant, anyway. Yeah. Who's Protestant, anyway. So James doesn't get to retain his throne, and Louis XIV doesn't see his rival removed. Instead, we have lots of European war. Because he's now king of England. And, well, and Ireland and Scotland. And the Holland, Netherlands. Netherlands. And he's leading, in the Nine Years' War, a thing called the Grand Alliance. Mm. So you've got the Holy Roman Emperor, the Netherlands, Spain, England, lots of other countries as well. And they fight Louis XIV pretty much to a standstill. So in 1697, the Treaty of Ryswick, there is peace between Louis XIV and everybody else. And in this peace, Louis recognises William as King of Scotland and Ireland, of course, England. So really, in that battle between the two of them, he's won. Well, he never defeats Louis. Louis he's got never to a point defeated. where he's equal. So he's no, no He's contained him yeah. and forced him to a, yeah. a truce in which he is recognised by Louis as king. But coming from a little backwater of a li- li- nation states, no very, very small mm. place in Europe, to suddenly squaring up to him and being equal is pretty mm. cool. However, we do then have another controversy with the Spanish succession. Spain is no longer a great power by this stage, so of the Philip II era, that's now gone, but they've still got a lot of territory, and their ruler, also called Charles II, is dying and doesn't have any sons. So he's got sisters who are married to Louis XIV and uh, some of the Habsburgs. Which ones? So there's the... Austria, Germany. So 1699, and of course that means, you know, who's going to inherit? Mm. So 1699, he agrees to partition the territories between France and... Um, other countries, but in 1700 he changes his mind, doesn't want to split it, and in his will leaves it all to France. Mm. It's not going to go well. And dies. Mm. So Louis is put in this impossible position where either he has to reject territories which are granted to him, you know, in the will of a monarch, mm. or he's going to accept them, which will inevitably lead to war, because this goes against previous terms of agreement mm. they've had. He chooses to accept the territory, and on the death of James II in 1701, goes against the um, Treaty of Ryswick and recognises his son as James III. Oh, right. So, OK, the oh, one who was going to be... A, who thought was a fake baby. Yeah. So he recognises him as king when previously he'd recognised William. So, Parliament, who had just agreed an act of settlement which didn't involve the old young pretender, is upset about this. William's upset about this, so we have the War of the Spanish Succession from 1701. However, William doesn't get to be involved in it. He'd had poor health over the winter of 1701-1702 and his horse stumbled, apparently, on a molehill when he was out riding in Richmond Park, suffered a broken collarbone, and apparently sort of recovered, but a fever set in, and then in 1702 he dies at the age of 51 at Kensington Palace. And his Jacobite enemies toasted the little gentleman in black velvet. He's a penguin! He's definitely <laughs> a little penguin, little Uncle Fester penguin. They were referring to the mole that... Uh, Unhorsed. Oh, right, I see. Make it. But, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe historians have misinterpreted they that have. remark. They definitely have. So, that is the reign of William III and Mary II. Shall we do? I think we should give them some scores. Mm. Battleiness! So, obviously, we've got some good stuff for battleiness. Yeah, it's really surprising. For William. Yeah. First of all, 1602, before he becomes King of England, not even in England, mm. of course... But he was only 20, had no experience. His army was only sort of about 25,000 strong, whereas Louis XIV has got about 120,000 men, well-trained under commanders like Turenne, Condé and Luxembourg. Plus we've got English naval assaults weighing in on the matter. Refused peace, of course, when he was offered the opportunity to be king Mm. of a small territory at the expense of his country. Uh, The Duke of Buckingham, the one that um, masturbated during Hobbes' geometry lessons, (laughs) of course... Um, pressed him to see the game was up his country was lost he should just give in to which William responded it is indeed in great danger but there is a sure way never to see it lost and that is to die in the last ditch now that is the sort of stuff we want to hear exactly 
and of course we have success. Naval defeats forced England out in 1674, autumnal rain made Holland impassable, mm. and he creates this brilliant di- diplomatic alliance which very quickly captures, recaptures the town of Bonn. French army evacuated. He still loses some territory. Louis XIV does gain some mm. of the provinces, but ultimately the Dutch survive. Yeah. Which didn't look on the cards at all, and William is this heroic Protestant figure. Yeah, yeah. We then have in 1688 the Glorious Revolution. Mm-hmm. His preparation, as we said, he did it very cautiously. He didn't attack really early and hot-headedly like Monmouth. He secured the support of English politicians and European leaders, including, impressively, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. Mm. Yeah, pretty impressive. And the Pope, of course, is a Catholic, and William is a Protestant. Yeah. His invasion force, apparently, was about 40,000 men, 463 ships, 4,000 horses, 21 massive guns, a portable bridge and a printing press for propaganda. <laughs> um, so it was bigger than the Spanish Armada. Wow, that's a the great little fact. Mm. Like the Spanish Armada, the weather plays a big part. William had been held up by the weather, but then the winds helped him out, so it became known as the Protestant wind. Mm. Whereas, of course, the Spanish Armada had been waylaid by the storm, so it was said that God's wind blew. Right. Mm. And what's more, he lands in Torbay on the 5th of November. Ah, the gunpowder plot. So it's very two good. real big dates in the Protestant yeah. mythology. So it gets very much caught up in all of that. They would have landed there even if it was the day before, <laughs> if they'd just made yes. it up. So his tactics. He believes that he could beat James in battle, but he also knew James's psychology and believes that he just waited him out. James would crumble in the face of Quite adversity. Right. He did exactly. That's what happened. What's more, William was well prepared for it. He paid his troops three months in advance, so he could afford to just sit and wait. Because his troops had already been paid. That's brave. I thought they'd have picked <clears> it. Well, but it means that they're not getting... I mean, I don't know if he just gives them all the money yeah. straight out, but he's got three months of pay oh, right. so you're so to ready, give to yeah. them so yeah. that they're not going to get yeah. fed up and wander off. But it's known as Glorious Revolution, but it is really an invasion. Although he's invited, William nevertheless brings this huge force, lands, and effectively usurps. Yeah, that's always... Whenever people say, when was the last time Britain was invaded, it's always 1066 mm. gets rolled out, and then there's a little little sort of footnote, well, and yes. 16. So really, this is the last time in which a foreign force successfully invades and the monarch mm. is usurped. But there's no battles, and he's invited. That's, that's what makes it complicated. Yeah, if it. only there'd been a battle in which 50,000 people had been yes. killed. <laughs> it would have been so much better. slaughter, please. But anyway, credit to it. Mm. Yeah, it's done well. Yeah. Then we have Ireland, 1689-91. James, of course, supported by um, Earl of Tyrconnell and French troops, took control of most of Ireland in 1689 with a view to launching that as uh, launching pad for him to get back into England. Mm. Derry um, became subject of a siege because that was Protestant. They refused James's um, in-person demands for surrender. So Dr. Motter of no surrender. Hold out for sort of about 105 days, lots of people killed, really horrible conditions, but relief of sent, and they survive. Mm. Schomburg, a veteran commander, was sent by William to sort things out, but unfortunately, heavy rain, hunger, disease, they suffered really quite bad losses without actually fighting any battles. So in 1690, William decides, right, if you, can, if you want something done properly, do it do yourself. yourself yeah. So he comes over in 1690 with, again, about 300 ships, 36,000 troops. He doesn't muck around, does he? And a massive army. And it's an international army of Huguenots, Dutch, Germans, English, etc. And he just makes straight for James's army. Mm. So at the Battle of the Boyne, fought around a uh, village of Oldbridge near Drogheda um, and a ford um, across the river. William's troops suffered heavy casualties, including Schomburg, who was killed. Mm. So they're crossing this ford under heavy uh, artillery fire. But they make the crossing and then Jacobites, screened by their cavalry, make retreat, and thus have lost the battle. Right. And of course, as we remember, James himself fled the battle. So the, ju- the, 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 the battle itself was securing that river. So once they were across, the Jacobites thought, right, game's up. Well, it was, it, it was more that... They lost their nerve. Yeah. Well, James obviously lost his nerve and ran off. Mm. And also the Irish army are under-trained, very under-equipped. They're really no match for right. William's heavily yeah. equipped troops. James, of course, had run away. Apparently, when he um, found his way to Lady Tyrconnell, so the wife of the Irish commander, he complained, your countrymen have run away. To which uh, she responded, if they have, sire, your majesty seems to have won the race. Mm -hmm. 
I like these little sound bites from the In contrast to uh, James's display, William during the battle was grazed on his shoulder by a cannonball. Really? So it flying right at him just gets his collarbone again. Just dro- grazes him. Just nor- north of his wing. Uh, to which apparently he responded, It is well it came no nearer. Oh, he's right. Mm. Absolutely. A contrast between William's uh, yeah. behaviour to point. That Carry on fighting. James's. Then in 1691, we have the Battle of Orkram. Uh, Jacobites hold off until William's forces finally break through after numerous failed assaults, capture the castle. Uh, a Jacobite general apparently was trying to rally the troops for counter-attack until he was decapitated by cannon, Ooh. at which point they rather lost their morale. Yeah. And then Limerick, again in 1691, had held off a siege in 1690, but after Orkram falls, there's nothing left, yeah. and Ireland surrender on the condition of the protection of civilians and toleration for Catholics. Right. And then we have uh, something called the Flight of the Wild Geese, where the commander Sarsfield left Ireland with around 10,000 troops, 4,000 women and children, so they were allowed to enter the French service. Mm. So they effectively told, if you want to leave, do it now. And they did. Oh, wow. But Ireland. Job done. Job done. Of course, we have naval supremacy. Uh, La Hogue, um, which is a great naval victory for England, French fleet um, being pursued by a man, Admiral Edward Russell, from Barfleur, Cherbourg, and then to La Hogue. All the French ships just get to, in that conflict get destroyed, and it really establishes their command of the Channel. I remember this, and they, they hang outside... Is this one where they hang around outside the port? Yes. And they can't leave, so they've just got control of the Channel by just bottlenecking them in there. Mm. And then they eventually they capture the ships, burn yeah. the ships, etc. And something of a pioneer in military matters, he advises ministers to acquire Gibraltar. Clever. Still have, of course. Yeah. Builds Plymouth Naval Dockyard. Um, introduces naval pensions, and Mary establishes the Veterans Hospital at Greenwich. All oh, right. So some nice uh, naval stuff. It's one point for her. And, of course, we have the containment of Louis Fourteenth. This is the biggest for me. I think it's brilliant. Louis's most powerful king of the period, arguably the sort of ultimate monarch. If there was a European Whoa, Rex this, Factor... This is Rex Factor. What are you saying? If there was a European Rex Factor, Louis Fourteenth would definitely be a contender for the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. William establishes a grand alliance, a coalition of England, Netherlands, Spain, recognised by Louis and his historian uh, Voltaire as his nemesis. Voltaire was Louis' historian? Uh, well, he, well uh, like had sort of, of the same 50 period. years later, he wrote oh, the okay, sort of well. official history of Louis XIV. But that's quite a big thing, to be recognised as Louis' enemy, because Charles and James have been little more than these sort of yeah. client kings yeah, yeah. almost, whereas William, he recognises that... Yeah, well, that's what I mean. He went from this not even a sort of pseudo-king of a very small principality mm. to being his equal. Yeah. So which he's, is almost a victory in a way. He's, in effect, commander of the anti-Louis yeah. forces, certainly of the Protestant forces. Yeah, that's brilliant. And his legacy, he inherits an army in 1689 with very little experience, leads it to victory in Ireland, and then sort of bloods it, if you will, in Europe. Mm. So he's the first king since Henry VIII to take troops to war with France. Mm. Really? So a very long time, over 100 years, fights Louis to a standstill, and William's army is the one led by Marlborough, which eventually defeats Louis in battle. So it's really William's legacy that leads mm. to... Yeah, I think this is really good. Is there anything against good. him? We do have some things which should say against him. Right. We did, of course, have a naval defeat at Beachy Head in 1690. Yeah. French fleet, about 200 vessels approaching along the south coast. Um, English forces commanded by Mount Earl of Torrington... Um, Anglo-Dutch forces. He was instructed to engage the enemy by Mary, but delayed for several days, claimed to be ill, then claimed to be waiting for reinforcements. When he finally did engage, he just sent the Dutch ships out to take the full brunt of the attack, and then just used the disabled vessels to block the Thames. So thus you had this situation in which the English coast was unprotected because the English fleet was behind Mm -hmm. the disabled vessels. They couldn't get out. And then you had the army, mostly in Ireland, Mm -hmm. fighting that battle. So it was quite a dangerous period. Fortunately, Torville, who was the French commander, uh, launched a guerrilla attack on Tainmouth, burned a parish church, and the whole of the West Country, of all religions, just came out in arms against them, and they just <laughs> decided to leave. But, as we said, heavy investment from 1690 led to naval supremacy. Yeah, so. I think I don't really give him minus points for that. The bigger thing we have to focus on are William does have limitations. Mm. Quote from Voltaire about William, where he said, He left behind him the reputation of a great statesman, though he had never been popular, and that of a general to be feared, though he had lost many battles. Had he? Well, although he's acknowledged to be very brave, he doesn't actually win a lot of battles. He's a much better diplomat than he is a general. So 1672 war, though he holds out, he still loses territory to Louis. 
Oh, these early wars I see in, in early Holland, wars. Yeah. Then, of course, the glorious revolution, he doesn't actually have to fight a battle to win mm. the King from England. And then the wars against Louis. There are a lot of defeats mm. that William has in these battles, a lot of very you know high casualties and whatnot. And Louis is never defeated by William. He's never done once and for all. It's only ever really stopping him and containing him. So there's no extent to which you could say that William defeats Louis. Louis is very much the top dog still, and he still gains territory, and he still is yeah. predominant. But so William has halted his advance, but he hasn't gone any further than that. No, but in losing these little battles, mm. he did still manage to, through these losses, to pitch himself as an equal, or at mm. least as a as a rightful enemy. Mm. So he might have lost the battles, but sort of... Won the won, war. Won a, won, a, won a war of equality. Yes. <laughs> he won the war to... to this, in effect, his sort of diplomatic efforts of the alliance that he builds and preparations, that is how he, in effect, contains Louis, by having everybody there that Louis just isn't able to keep on mm. fighting indefinitely. But there is no great battle... I mean, other than in Ireland, Battle of the Boyne and Ockram, we can't point to a battle that William wins. No. Where he's left at the end with his sword in the air going, <laughs> Yes! Well, that doesn't happen. He never defeats Louis, really. But, I mean, it's, it's, we're going to see more and more like this. Mm. And I think it's pretty good. Oh, it is, but it is good. It is, re- I mean, we've got... I mean, again, we're forgetting the revolution. It's not It's not a pitched battle, but he invades. Mm. And every time... What other invasions we've got? If Henry V to France, yeah. conquering most of France, mm. um, the left side. <laughs> yes, um, the left of France. And and William I, we've given huge points to. Yeah. I'm going to give him five for that alone. Yeah. And I'm going to give him quite a lot for the rest of it. I've got to be eight or nine because uh, I think it's just it shows shows his character, mm. and I like it. I like the little penguin. <laughs> what are you going to give him? Eight point five. That is a high score. I'm going to give him seven point five. I think mm. just because of that fact that there there isn't the great battles. I know the diplomacy is an important part in effect of yeah warfare. I think there will have been some kings who will have had great victories yeah so that's 16 battliness scandal we got a little bit of both excellent both here first of all we've got what is in effect the daughter's betrayal which is the book title (laughs) and james wrote to mary when he knew that william's invasion was coming saying though i know you were a good wife and ought to be so yet for the same reason i must believe you will still be as good a daughter to a father that has always loved you so tenderly and that has never done the least to make you doubt it Emotional blackmail. Emotional blackmail. Mary was criticised by uh, some witnesses for appearing a bit too cheerful when she arrived in England. They thought she should be solemn because she was replacing her father. It's a difficult time, sad day, but she was looking quite cheery and smiley. She was going to get upset a few people. And then on her way to the coronation, which had to be delayed for a couple of hours as well, she received another letter from James in which he just rants at her and saying, if she were crowned while he and the Prince of Wales were living, the curse of an outraged father would light upon her, as well as that of God, who has commanded duty to parents. Mm. He's a one, isn't he? He is. He doesn't come across very sympathetically in any of this, but, nevertheless, the daughter does usurp the father. Yeah. Even though she's not really a particularly strong mover in any of these events. That happens. Yeah, that's quite big, doesn't it? Nothing like that's happened before, has it? In her defence, of course, she made William promise that James would come to no harm. Um, William had instructed her to look happy, mm. so that it wouldn't appear like she was under duress. And she generally believed her father had concocted the birth of a son and that he was endangering the Church of England, which she cared about. Yeah, yeah, so, fair deeds, yeah. fair deeds. However, we do have some more scandal, proper scandal, Elizabeth Villiers. Mm-hmm. The Villiers name, of course, we reckon from the George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham, mm. so they're always... Yeah. There, causing trouble. This is William's mistress. He really? a mistress, yes. Oh, that's a shame. Apparently not beautiful. Mm. Apparently had a cast in her eye. Uh, but she was very witty. Um, older and more sophisticated than Mary, so probably more on William's intellectual Hello. level. Oh, all right, yeah. Um, but James encouraged Mary's house... James II, when he heard about it, encouraged Mary's household to cause trouble. Mm. They inform Mary, so they're trying to... Yeah, split them up. Split them up. Mm. And apparently on one occasion, Mary waited outside Elizabeth Villiers' room until two o'clock in the morning, at which point uh, William came out Ooh, dear. of the room. So Mary's cross and crying and screaming, and William is furious. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? How very dare you? 
So uh, convinces Mary that it's not how it looks. No, no. And uh, to the point at which she begs him for forgiveness. How could I ever doubt you? Oh. And uh, William sends the servants packing. Mm. There are also some suggestions by some people, some rumours, about him being possibly homosexual. Ironically, the fact that he only has one suspected mistress is one of the reasons why I feel fixed. He only had one. What's (laughs) What's all that about? So there are a few men, um, Hans Willem Bentinck, the Earl of Portland, Arnold Joost van Keppel, uh, the Earl of um, Albemarle, and apparently Portland in 1697 wrote to William expressing concern that people would believe his kindness towards Keppel, the other one, would make people believe that they were lovers. Mm. Which almost comes across as jealousy. Yeah, I see what Portland. You mean, I don't believe it. Now, and William himself responded to this, saying, it seems to me very extraordinary that it should be impossible to have esteem and regard for a young man without it being criminal. Yeah, well, yeah, cool. Yeah, no, I've just got an image of him rolling merry little treats with his beak along the floor, (laughs) little offerings. I I don't believe it. Well, maybe he did to um, this Von Keppel chap, but no, Mm. anyway. So we've got rumours, but probably not true about homosexuality, a mistress, but not not on any of the scale of anybody else. It's all on Mary here, isn't it? Yeah, usurping the father, but even then, you know, she's really in the background and wants him taken care of. Yeah, it's, it sounds a bit forced, doesn't it? Mm, it's, it's not real scandal on the level that we've had from others. No. no. Oh, I mean, two. Yeah, I was thinking two as well. Two for usurping the father. Mm. Subjectivity. We've got a lot of good things. Yeah. First up, Glorious Revolution. 1689, Bill of Rights, that is part of the settlement, declares England's supposed ancient rights and liberties, and they say it's illegal to dispense with acts of Parliament, can't levy money without Parliament's uh, consent, illegal to have a standing army in peacetime without Parliament's consent, and also things like freedom of debate in Parliament. So they're stepping up a lot of parliamentary freedom and privileges, Mm. which they feel they've been due before, but haven't really been enshrined in the way they imply. 1694, the Triennial Act um, requires that part, a new parliament is summoned every three years. Mm. So it's no longer just the discretion of the monarch when he feels like it, when he needs it. It now has to be called at regular intervals. The Civil List Act in 1697, the House of Commons has statutory control over the monarch's finances. Mm. So much more control there. And 1701, the Act of Settlement. So um, we're going to have a Protestant succession, so mm. no more Catholics. But also in this act, uh, it limits the power of the monarch to go to war without parliamentary approval. But all of these things, it's a big, big step towards a constitutional monarchy. That's true. We now yeah, have really, a huge really step. Limiting. Parliament's got statutory powers. It's the end of the royal Tudor supremacy. Yeah. So no more is it that the monarch's religion is the nation's religion. It's now England is Protestant, and the monarch has to conform with that. Mm. Yeah, so they've got this blank slate, really, in effect, haven't they? Mm. Well, again. indeed. So the House of Commons um, proclaimed, it said, the English should no longer date their laws and liberties from St. Edward the Confessor's days, but from those of William and Mary. So for the next sort of 100, 200 years, it's huge mythology around this. It's seen as the establishment of English rights and liberties. It's seen as the reason why England doesn't have Maybe, a revolution, yeah. but France does, because England sorted out the problem. Well, they didn't, yeah, they didn't cut their head off the snake like the French did. They mm. just took its fangs out a century earlier. Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is in many ways more significant than the Civil War in terms of a lasting legacy. Yeah, certainly, because it just went back. It gets forgotten, but it's one of the most important things in establishing the modern British state. That myth, that's brilliant. Mm. That's really good, isn't it? That's huge. We also have some good toleration. William himself is a Calvinist, but he wants a widespread toleration, believes that Jews shouldn't be forced to keep Christian Sunday, nor Quakers be penalised for swearing, refusing to swear. Um, for swearing? <laughs> for <refusing> to swear. <laughs> So in 1689, they have the Act of Toleration, where there is liberty of conscience granted to Protestant dissenters. So there's still some limitations on their being able to hold office and go to university, but they do enjoy a sort of thriving period because they're protected by William. Mm. Treaty of Limerick in 1691 was uh, quite positive in terms of the terms that William offered, so promising protection of Catholic population, allowing Catholic soldiers to swear loyalty to him or just to leave. Mm. And 1695 grants the press freedom of speech. Really? Something he'd had in the Netherlands, so he brings it to England. Well, that's massive. I didn't realise that was just going to plop out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just plop. <laughs> so before then, there was censorship all over the place. I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, so... Yeah, so they just... Guess. Wow. Mm. That's massive. I mean, I think that probably will develop more when we get a big national press, press etc. Yeah, nevertheless, but... something that William puts in. 
And a really huge thing is the establishment in 1694 of the Bank of England. Yeah. This was set up to meet the demands of war with France because they needed a manager way to manage government debts, which, of course, are going to be huge to pay for everything. So it's done along the lines of the Bank of Amsterdam. In theory, they need to be able to raise significant amount of money on the capital markets, lend it to government at good rates, and have a huge sort of investment into the Navy and the, and the Army. And it works. Mm. They've got security of payment, which means that English interest rates plunge, while French interest rates soar. Um, which means England can outspend France, even though England is much smaller in in geography and population. England yeah. can spend more on the military than France can. Wow. So, the legacy of this, London replaces Amsterdam as the financial capital of the world. It's a revolution in English commerce, and of course it's hugely important um, for the development of the British Empire. Yeah, yeah, so the, this, is, this is the birth of so much. Exactly. And we're going to give some credit to Mary... Right. Because she does do some good things. Joint rule works. Mary is much more popular than William. Really? Well, because William is foreign, he's cold, oh, yeah. he's aloof, yeah, yeah. he's a necessary evil mm. for most people in Britain. But Mary is warm, outgoing, and what's more, she's English mm. and Protestant. So she's popular, William isn't. And that really important in making 1688 acceptable for a lot of the population. Just above that, she's there alone is important, but then her continuing role is important to offset the qualities about William that people yeah. don't like. And when William wasn't around, which was a fair amount of the time because of all his wars, she did have to rule by herself, and she showed some strong leadership in meeting the Beachy Head crisis, made her own decisions with authority in face of competing egos amongst the nobles. And she does some admirable personal work, as we said earlier, founded the hospital at Greenwich for veteran seamen, heavily involved in planning the gardens at uh, Hampton Court and Kensington Palace. Oh, right. Hampton Court as well, of course, we often associate it with Henry VIII mm. and the Tudors, but of course the, the back bit and the bigger yeah, bit is yeah. actually William and Mary. Yeah, there's loads more of this. Exactly, yeah. much more of that. Um, and also she popularised um, blue and white porcelain. Um, oh, right. Item yeah. to have, and keeping goldfish as pets, apparently. William needed a snack. Well, indeed, the penguin needs his fish. But there is some bad as well. Yeah. Scotland. Mm. William never visits Scotland and never has any desire to do so. But he doesn't prove to be a very popular man, though. Mm. Firstly, in 1692, we have the Glencoe Massacre. As you said before, the Highland chiefs were required to take an oath of loyalty to William. And there was one small MacDonald clan who were on their way to do so, were delayed a bit. Their man that was going to do it, McLean, was delayed in signing it, so he got there a little bit late, but he thought everything was OK. However, Campbell clan, keen to settle some old scores against McDonald's. So they persuade William that they need to get rid of them, they're rooting out some criminals, and that he signs an order to let them deal with it. And so the Campbell soldiers received into McDonald's um, sort of household as guests. But then, when they're given the order, massacre 38 people in the house, and then a further 40 women and children die of exposure when they run off and their homes are burnt. So they're just out in the wilderness, in the hills, in the highlands. Oh, nasty. Horrible, horrible thing. And William, as I say, is tainted by association with it. It's not sure to what extent he was really involved in planning it to any extent, but to a limited extent he sort of mm. acquiesces in it happening. Mm. Apparently there was, cause to a certain extent, that he was one of these people that couldn't really be bothered with paperwork. So he just let it all build up and then just sign it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh dear. We also have the Darien Scheme. And this is an attempt for Scotland to become a world trading nation. They set up a colony called New Caledonia on the oh, Isthmus yeah. of Panama. Mm. Apparently about a quarter of Scottish capital, so all of money, all the money in Scotland, about 25% of all the money in Scotland is invested into it. But poor planning, poor supplies and outbreak of disease means that the whole enterprise is a complete failure. Nobles and landowners are completely ruined. And it's, uh, it's not very popular because William, King of Scotland, sides with the City of London so he doesn't give the colonists' protection of the Royal Navy. So it ruins Scotland, issue of great resentment, and ultimately it leads to the Act of Union because Scotland is almost bankrupt by the failure of this. Yeah, yeah, throw their lot in with their wealthy neighbours. Yeah. Yeah. So not too great for Scotland. In Ireland, although William offered quite generous terms in the Treaty of Limerick, Protestant landowners pretty much ignore it 
because it doesn't really suit them. So they passed penal laws against Catholics with dispossession of land, exclusion from Parliament and the army. Ireland is also excluded from the Navigation Act, so they can't share in colonial trade, leading to a collapse in its shipping industry, and also strong limits placed on their export of wool. Mm. Um, and also we have the sort of questionable legacy, as we said earlier, of the Orange Order. Mm. So William's invasion left a strong sectarian legacy, because the siege of Derry and that holding out, and also the battles of the Boyne and Ockram, celebrated by Orange Order marches. Yeah, which even that. now are still a mm. bone of contention, but of course, you know, sort of thirty odd years ago, they were incredibly mm. um, fractious. Fractious, yes. In fairness to William, he's just trying to. Av- he actually did try to avoid having to fight a war in Ireland, so he offered terms to Tyrconnell that basically said, you know, if you just stay out of everything, then you know, you can be Catholic, you can do whatever you want. I don't really care. Get on with it. But I'm king. I'm king. Leave me alone. Mm. Don't support James. But they refused that. Debate of, you know, whether Ireland would have been better off just accepting those terms or, you know, as they saw it, we've got a Catholic king, French support, this is our best chance to kick the English out once more. I think that's fair, I reckon. Mm. If I I were in the Irish position, Mm. as you say, you've got this huge European superpower behind you, Mm. your own monarch ready to take the throne. But of course, ultimately it doesn't work out. But for William, it was never a religious or ideological campaign, and he never intended this legacy. Would, wouldn't have any yeah, recognition like of the Orange Order. It's yeah. not connected to him at all. So for William, he didn't have, he didn't want to go in and massacre Catholics, and indeed he doesn't do. He just wants to sort out the politics of it. And Ireland is unlucky that it just becomes a pawn, in fact, in yeah. the European campaign. Yeah, yeah. Although we give Mary some credits, at the other end of the spectrum, she doesn't come out particularly impressively. Mm. On the prospect of being uh, of ruling alone she responded i did not know the laws of england were so contrary to the laws of god i don't think that the husband should ever be obedient to the wife yeah she's a bit weak and uh, on the prospect of ruling in william's absence she said i only desire not to make a foolish figure in the world the thing is in effect the same for i being wholly a stranger to business it must be the privy council must do all things she also declared herself very ignorant in all kinds of business and complained that business does but break my brains the more and not ease my heart. Mm. If we compare her to, um, you know, she was named after Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, the 16th century, the same century, Elizabeth was on the throne. Yeah. That's... Who refused to share power with any man mm. and wouldn't marry as a result. And of course, her namesake, Mary I, had to take on the establishment to win her throne. Yeah. Mary II is by no means a feminist icon. No, absolutely. Mm. Also, we have the cost of war. Mm. Very costly. Apparently, the European war is about 75% of public expenditure. Wow. Under James. About £5 million a year, so £40 million for the reign. Wow. Um, and William was very unilateral in how he did things. He was effectively his own foreign secretary. The Commons were increasingly angry at the lack of consultation, which is some of the reasons that we see some of the statutory limits placed mm. on what a monarch can do in terms of declaring war and in terms of foreign mm. commitments. And it doesn't go very well for the Netherlands either, sadly. Cripples their finances. He doesn't have insurance, so there's no heir, mm. no direct heir to the Orange um, line. They end up having to withdraw from international politics, dismantle their fleet, and of course, with uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of Amsterdam declines, Dutch banking houses and trading offices moves to London. But this is about kings and queens of England. It yes, is indeed, it is indeed. The other thing which um, might not sit too well with the uh, cuddly penguin image that we currently have. Oh, I don't think he's cuddly. I think he's a bit uh, clammy. Yeah. And a bit like Fester. William is very unpopular mm. in, in England, um, partly because he's Dutch. He surprises Charles II by being a patriot rather than a vainglorious person who's willing to sell his country and his principles for a, a bit of glory. No real interest in English liberties, never really understands the kingdom, so his sole focus is Louis Fourteenth and containing him. Mm. So all of the stuff about the Glorious Revolution and all these sort of things, he doesn't really care about any of that. And it's Parliament that's pressing that, not William. William, of course, accepts it and goes along with it. And part of the reason the reign works is that he's not very interested in that. But his interest is just Louis XIV and France. Mm. Um, and he doesn't particularly like um, his role in England. So he said, truly, a king of England is the worst figure in Christendom. It is impossible to credit the serene indifference with which they consider events outside their own country. How things have changed. Indeed. <laughs> he's quite reclusive. Um, London was too damp and sort of foggy for his asthma. 
That's why they moved to Hampton Court and then uh, developed Kensington Palace. Um, also, he's not one for the ritual of monarchy, which mm. is a big thing under Charles and James yeah. and the Stuarts. Mock to the comedy of the coronation, full of foolish old popish ceremonies. Dismissed also the um, ancient touching for scrofula, which is where the kings would touch oh, subjects yeah. and then yeah. heal them because yeah. they were divine. Uh, to which he said, God give you, he refuses to do it, and says, God give you better health and more sense. <laughs> He's great. I like this guy a lot. 1670 was his first visit to England. Apparently he was appalled at the licentious court mm. under Charles II, where he witnessed things such as Englishmen relieving themselves at any available corner at court, mm. and also uh, Charles's spaniels being allowed to eat at the dinner table. <laughs> um, although apparently uh, the Duke of Buckingham did get him drunk. Um, as a young man, and apparently as a result he tried to break into the rooms of the Maids of Honour at one stage. <laughs> but he probably wasn't very happy about it afterwards. No. No. Um, and in 1692, a great quote from uh, from William, he said, This is a very fatiguing day for me. I opened Parliament this morning and have still to endure the celebrations of my birthday. Oh, oh dear. Oh, <laughs> so, impressive. yes, he is not the Merry Monarch. He's not no. a popular man. And, yeah, all the things that we would credit as being such brilliant things, like the Political stuff. Yeah. That's not things that he cares about. But he lets them happen. But he does let them happen. He could have opposed them. Yeah. But, I mean, whatever his um, whatever his motivation behind accepting them, mm. he did accept them. You know, yeah. he, because he was bored, fine. I mean, there was loads of things that Charles did just because he couldn't be bothered. Yes. <laughs> right. um, I think it's good. I really think it's good. It's an interesting one. We have a lot of huge legacy. Yeah. More than we have enjoying being a subject at the time. The time, people didn't really like him. They never liked him. Other, but if we don't give him credit for, say, freedom of the press, the, all these English liberties and the yeah. Constitution, we'll, they'll never get no Yeah, the Hanoverians haven't got a hope now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, uh, his unpopularity... Yeah. Um, that's their loss. I think he's, <laughs> he's great. I really want to give him a massive score. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to go for another... I was going to say 8.5, but I almost want to go 9. Ooh. It's so big. Bank of England. Um, porcelain. <laughs> yes, goldfish. <laughs> goldfish. Um, toleration. Um, glorious revolution. All these liberties that we now take for granted. It's 9. It's big mm. for me. It's really good. I, uh, oh, what am I going to give him? I am going to, I'm going to give him an 8. I am going to bring him down a little bit for the, would you want to be a subject at the time? It wouldn't have seemed that great. It wouldn't be that enjoyable. Mm. And a little bit of offsetting in the fact that it's not just that he doesn't do it, yeah. but the fact that he really is just... England is a means to an end for the war yeah, in Europe. Yeah. So for that reason, I'm going to bring him down a little bit, but you have to give him the credit for all that stuff. Yeah. So that is a very, very good 17. Longevity. Well, of course, we have two longevity numbers here. Tricky. Should we just do the longest? We'll just do the longest one. But Mary II was queen from 1689 to 1694, just 5.83 years. But William III, and thus the total, 1689 to 1702, which was 13.08. So if we type that in to the calculator, that gives us 4.11 for longevity. Not too good. Not too good. Dynasty. Not the programme. No children. Mm. For William and Mary, mm. sadly. She, uh, Mary suffered a miscarriage in 1678, which went quite badly, so there was a suspicion maybe something happened there that meant that she wasn't able to conceive. Mm. Thereafter, yes, yeah. no children, sadly, which uh, gives us a score of zero, of course. Wrong number of genes. Indeed. So we end up with a total score of 41.1, which, uh, you know, again, is sort of, I mean, it's... Well, actually, it's quite close to Elizabeth I first, actually. But, you know, that's what problem is when you don't have any yeah. children. That brings you down. That does bring you very far. Down. But we now have to consider that final question. Does he, she, they have that great quality, that lasting achievement and legacy, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! Uh, so, can we get Mary out of the way? Yes, let's get Mary out of the way. No. No. Right. So, William. <laughs> yes. I'm very tempted. I mean, he has got to be strongly considered here. Yeah. I had absolutely no con- a thought that mm. he'd get this before mm. an hour ago. <laughs> um, but it's really good. It's really good. It's the, it's the first time I can see 
a Rex factor in this more modern mould mm. that's appearing. Like in the past, there's been a grey area where they haven't quite conformed to the sort of medieval idea of a king. Mm. They're not modern enough, and so they sort of get lost here. But this, this is the start mm. of real modern monarchy. It's so definitely good. the last point at which we have a strong parliament, but still a strong monarch yeah. at the same time. But I think he balances it. Mm. Maybe it's because he doesn't care. Mm. But, but it works. It works, and a period, another period of huge upheaval. Mm. He stabilises. Yeah. So in his favour, we've got the Glorious Revolution, of mm-hmm. course, and all, all of that entails. The wars against Louis XIV containing yeah, that's great power. Brilliant. And the Bank of England, I think, has got to be another major... Yeah, brilliant. ...legacy that leaves. Brilliant. On the other hand, he's foreign and unpopular. His only interest really is Europe. He, he sort of sees... Um, He's like a uh, uh, consultant businessman or something. He comes <laughs> in and strips the country for its parts yeah. in order to finance something else. Yeah. But in doing so, he's... And he's like a visionary. He can see the future. He knows that w- Europe's where it's at. He needs to. Of course, pe- people never like change. They don't. They don't. Especially British people in <laughs> British companies. He's trying to turn around British Rail. Mm. Yes, I've got it. I'm really impressed. I'm definitely going to give it to him. I think he's one of those ones where probably people won't really flock to him. No. And that when it comes to popularity states, you probably won't have anyone standing in his corner, and he'll probably be glad about it. Mm. But huge achievements, impressive record. Yeah got to give it to him it's a yes for me as well excellent well done to that's William good. III he gets the Rex factor so that's another Stuart that gets a yes brilliant see that's what I like about this I'd never I'd never even knew much about him let alone thought he'd get the Rex factor mm. and here he is next time we will be doing his sister-in-law and Mary's second sister Queen Anne who is the last of the Stuarts, so the Stuart dynasty will be ending next time. Right. Cusp of the Hanoverians. Indeed. So, thank you very much for listening. Send us in your comments. See you next time. Cheerio. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Samsung, Expedia, and Sephora. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N.